This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, if you ventured out into Waikiki or on Oahu's North Shore this weekend, you may have noticed the droves of tourists out and about. We've been hearing about how some businesses aren't back to being fully staffed to deal with the onslaught. One popular attraction that is hoping to open in July is the Waikiki Aquarium. HBR reporter Casey Harlow has been checking in with them throughout the pandemic and joins us this morning. Hi, Casey. Morning. Uh, yes, as the Waikiki Aquarium, the second oldest aquarium in the country, uh, back in September did a story just to check in to see how they were doing. And during the initial lockdown, they began drawing funds from a reserve uh, that they had with the University of Hawaii. And they were basically in a very uncertain future. They were bankrolling the present survival for with the aquarium's future. Now, nine months later, it seems like the situation has changed for the good, for the better. Uh, they've received a lot of outpouring uh, of support from not only uh, private donors, but also the University of Hawaii and also the state legislature. Yeah, and I mean, that uh, uh, area there, the, the facilities, they have uh, rented those out for various uh, events and that was a income generator for for the aquarium but with that closed down you know that just they didn't have they didn't have the turnstile money right you right know? so it was a it was a bad situation for them yeah exactly a lot of their uh they they're pretty much a self-sufficient entity within the university of hawaii system uh they don't really get a lot of funding under normal uh before the pandemic didn't get a lot of uh support from the university other than from their uh, full-time employees. Uh, they've pretty much made their money either break even or turned a small profit through uh, their gate receipts or basically the tickets of people who come into the aquarium, their gift shop, and also those after-hours uh, events that you could rent out and uh, have the aquarium to yourself at night for like a graduation party, a wedding, or things like that. But yes, the pandemic has pretty much shut down all of that. Uh, and yeah, through this whole period, there is also uh, issues with the building itself because it's a very, very old uh, facility. And if you may recall, last month, the Department of Health uh, cited the Waikiki Aquarium for exceeding its wastewater limits uh, discharges into nearshore waters. And when I say wastewater, uh, this is water from their exhibits, from their holding tanks and things like that. And luckily, they were able to come to an agreement uh, with the Department of Health, and Andy Rossiter, who is the executive director, uh, told me this. We resolved that in the past few weeks, came to an amicable conclusion, and the legislature was kind enough to appropriate $1 million this year and $9 million next year towards addressing the issues with the water discharge at the aquarium. This is a consequence of an old building with out-of-date plumbing, etc. So yeah, they are, are also going to get funding for uh, the next couple of years to uh, fulfill that agreement that they've had with the State Department of Health. And uh, the aquarium also got $500,000 from the university and a $70,000 uh, donation from an anonymous donor. So all these uh, donations combined kind of help the aquarium for the near future and they're really looking forward to reopening and uh, recovery as well. So I imagine though with this construction that they've got planned though that's going to affect the operation of the aquarium. Uh, yeah uh, didn't get too many details about that uh, but uh, the story that aired today uh, they aren't just doing a renovation it seems like they're going to be doing a big construction project as well which would mean new exhibits which uh andy rossiter has been advocating for since he first got there in uh 17 years ago and that's the kind of funding that they've been really uh wanting that they've been drawing from right uh to for their survival so it looks like they'll be getting those kinds of renovations as well also going to be uh doing a lot more with the internal uh infrastructure of the aquarium as well so and then you mentioned that they got some help from the friends of the waikiki aquarium yeah exactly uh the friends of the waikiki aquarium uh is a nonprofit arm that does a lot of the fundraising they also hold events and they have membership for supporters for people who love the aquarium and uh, i spoke to lee higa okimoto who it was the former executive director when i last spoke to her uh, nine months ago but now she's a board member and she told me this 
Expo allowed for over $400,000 for operational support to cover utilities and the basic needs for the aquarium during the shutdown. Uh, we continue to provide communication support and programs for our members and the general public, such as our art contest. We had a Halloween contest and also our distinguished lecture series where we featured some scientists from across the country to provide us with insights on the work that they do actually on Coconut Island. And now that we are coming into uh, July and new tier uh, and tourism is coming back, the aquarium is actually looking to reopen sometime in the first week of July. And uh, the great news is that Andy sees this as a very uh, encouraging sign as well. Even more encouraging is the number of uh, tourists or the type of tourists that come in here seem to have changed a little. And they are now uh, walking around. You see many, many walking in up in front of the aquarium and with the aquarium open I'm pretty confident they would come in to check it out so yeah things things are looking positive yeah definitely the crowds are down there for sure I was down there yesterday and uh, yeah hopefully that they'll mean more people at the turnstiles yeah exactly and they're very hopeful for that as well so right. hopefully we can all go back to the aquarium at some point and uh, see your favorite exhibit see your favorite fish and okay. whatnot <laughs> all right thanks so much Casey We've been talking with HBO reporter Casey Harlow. Find his stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Coming off our first long weekend of summer break, that means barbecues, beach trips, and plenty of fun under the sun. But one outdoor activity that might be off the table for some is hiking, at least at, at a few of Hawaii's famous spots. Camping permits to hike along the famous Kalalau Trail on the Napali Coast are being snatched up within minutes every day. The conversations Matt Fairfax spoke with State Parks Assistant Administrator Alan Carpenter about why the permit system was established and advice for anyone planning to travel to the Nepali coast this summer. Here's Alan. Prior to it being a state park, it was already a known camping destination. Uh, it became a state park, I think, in 1978, or part of the Nepali Coast State Wilderness Park in 1978. And for many years, I don't even know if we had a capacity set, but the, the popularity grew. Um, permits were originally free, you had to come into a state parks office to get them. We have had a reservation system for probably 25 to 30 years. But in modern times, the system was set up in about 2010 when we finally joined the rest of the world and went online. And the capacities have always been between 60 and 80. And then we've had a, a large number of you know periods in history where popularity has waxed and waned and there were times when uh, illegal activities in the valley spiked, and you know sometimes we had as many as more illegal people in the valley than legal people. And so the numbers are set, you know, to create a quality of experience, to allow for the you know the capacity of our composting toilets, things like that, um, public safety. There's, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but we really don't want this to be you know a place that's you know, for parties, it's supposed to be a wilderness and a cultural backcountry area. Uh, so the policies are all set at, you know, trying to maintain that, that character as a cultural landscape, as a unique backcountry environment, and to meet the, um, the uh, capacity of the things like the toilets and things that, that service the park. And you briefly mentioned um, illegal activities going on in the valley, and since permits are in such high demand right now. Are you seeing people uh, attempting to use the trail without permits? Well, it'd be, it's difficult for me to talk about the current use of the trail without also mentioning the, the relatively new management paradigm at, at the front door, which is Hyena State Park, where the trailhead is. Since 2018, um, post-flood, we began operating with a new paradigm where we now have reservations to get to the, the day-use area of Hyena State Park, which includes the first two miles of the Colorado Trail. So that has had a pretty amazing effect on managing the, the illegal
legal access. There is still some, but some of the more complicated aspects out of that management uh, system is that now people sometimes attempt to get the overnight permits uh, just to get day use access, which used to be um, completely unmanaged. And so there, there's that strange um, sort of uh, conflict between the day use and the overnight use, which never was an issue before, but now it's, it's almost working in the opposite direction. So if people are buying some of the very coveted overnight permits just to get into day use, it, it even it, it enhances that the demand for that overnight use. There were no standalone hiking permits. Uh, camping permits in total must be must be purchased. Can you confirm that? The entrance to Haena State Park, which is now regulated by our reservation system, um, does allow you to have a, a hiking only permit, but only for the first two miles of the trail. So, if you're talking about access beyond Hanakapiai and Hanakapiai Falls, which can be as much as an eight-mile round-trip hike, that access does require the overnight permit. So only 60 people a day are legally allowed at this moment to get beyond Hanakapiai. And we think that's the appropriate number, you know, and there's a lot of issues. You need a, you need a different sort of um, amount of experience and supplies, et cetera, if you want to head down the coast. And uh, the... The system presently is working, you know, so the, the real issue with Kalalau is that we have a capacity, but the, the, the worldwide demand to get to this bucket list hike simply drives a, a, a frenzy of people trying to, to compete for the same 60 slots, right, every day. You know, there, there have been people who have called up and said, you know, your system's not working. It's sold out, you know, three minutes after midnight. And, in fact, that means our system is working beautifully, right? So the, the system's working well. It's just there are far, far more people who want to go there than, than we can allow to do so. And that's the, real, that's the real big problem, you know. Maybe we need alternate places that would provide a similar experience, but the, the system is working as it's intended to. And once we work out some of the kinks, with, you know, the conflicts between the day use and the overnight use, um, hopefully it will get a little bit better. And anecdotally, I do know the people we have working at the front door have, they, they see they see what's happening. They, they know if there's someone who has a an overnight pass, but they're carrying a day pack, um, they know they're not going to camp, right? And so they, they educate people, and hopefully we'll, we'll change that narrative and... Uh, as time moves forward and we up the capacity for day use, it will hopefully eliminate some of this competition for the, the nighttime passes, too. And we've also seen people post on social media about, you know, people posting about how to increase chances because these permits uh, sell out so quickly. I was just wondering what your opinion of, of people posting on social media about this story are. Well, social media drives demand, and, um, you know, there's, there's entire forums dedicated to this particular trail with good reason you know it really is an amazing trail it's an amazing experience and an amazing place i think it's kind of fun to see that stuff you know the the system should work for everybody but if someone wants to you know post the the precise method they used you know whether they selected the date first or the or the uh campsite location first etc um that's all kind of that's the way people work today in this uh internet driven society and would you say the summer months are the busiest of the year for attempting to secure permits for the Nepali Coast State Wilderness Park? So historically, absolutely. We presently, and this is because of COVID, we presently have a 30-day advance purchase period, which we realize is, you know, it's too short, and that drives the, comp the competition every single night at midnight. Prior to COVID, prior to the flood of 2018, we actually had a one-year advance purchase period, and that we realized was too long because when we shut down we had to shut down the the park for over a year after the flood we had to we were in a real difficult financial position not only were we not getting income for the camping we were we had to refund everybody a year's worth of money that was already spent in the previous fiscal year it, it was really kind of a you know a, an eye-opening uh, event that showed us that yeah maybe that wasn't the best way to do it sweet spot is probably going to be somewhere between three months and six months in advance and when we have a longer advance purchase period and as we come out of COVID we will lengthen that advance purchase period there will then be 
typically always some permits available for some point in the future. And when we had that longer advanced purchase period in the past, it would be sold out for like the next 30 days, and then there's lots of availability for the 11 months after that. But you're right, when you get back to summer, summer would sell out more like 90 days in advance. So by the by the beginning of the summer period, you know, in the middle of May, you couldn't get a permit until October you know, under, under our normal permitting circumstances. We realize everything's been exacerbated under COVID with this shorter window, um, and we will get around to fixing that as, as we move forward, which will open up some spots in the future and also allow people to plan a little bit better for their trips down the road, yeah. I think another important thing to address is once these permits are obtained and people, you know, make the trip, make the journey there, the permits do not mean that hikers can camp anywhere along the trail, correct? That's true. So we, you know, we do ask that people camp at the two established camping areas because, you know, they have, they are ready and they have open spaces where people can set up their tents. They have composting toilets so people aren't having to pollute the wilderness. And uh, those two places are Hanakoa at mile six and Kalalau at mile 11, there's always a provision. I would never tell somebody, you know, to hike if, if it's, you know, if you're tired, if you're exhausted, if it's dark, you know, so it, we don't expect people to, to kill themselves to get to Kalalau if they can't make it, um, but really you should plan to know your limits and uh, try to camp at one of the two established locations that I mentioned. And it seems like throughout the Hawaiian Islands, not every state park that requires certain permits sells out as quickly as the Nepali Coast. It seems like this Nepali Coast is kind of like the holy grail. Where do you see uh, the Nepali Coast ranking and the Kalalau Trail rank among the busiest parks for securing uh, camping permits in the Hawaiian Islands? That's a good question. Um, and people, you know, people have have uh, suggested, you know, you guys, I can't get a permit, so you guys should have a lottery system. Et cetera, et cetera. But honestly, I think any popular park, not just in Hawaii, but you know, all over the world, you are going to have a, a problem getting your reservation for that system. I think the the other sort of quintessential Hawaii backpacking trip is Haleakala Crater, and they I just checked they have a they have a six month advance purchase period right now, and it's sold out up to the exact day six months in advance. So wherever you have a, a a desirable hike, whether it's in Hawaii or not, um, with world popularity and global tourism and travel, it's never an easy ticket. You know, we'd, we'd have to just build new valleys that we don't, and we can't do that. So, it's always going to be that a golden ticket. Golden ticket is a great way to describe it. Well, Alan, anything else we haven't touched on, or anything you would like to say to those hoping to acquire permits or perhaps make the trip to the Nepali Coast area? You know, the only thing I would add is, you know. I hear a lot of stories about the frustration of getting those permits, and then oftentimes they're punctuated by, you know, a, an ecstatic post a couple days later where they actually did it. So be patient. Keep trying. Um, the system works. You know, if it's meant to be, you'll get one. And the only other thing I would say is I, I also hear people kind of say, well, I couldn't get a permit, so I'm going anyway. And you know what? That's just that's not the attitude we need and that's not the visitor we want to have because this is first and foremost you know we call it a wilderness park but honestly it, it's a it's a really fragile sensitive and important cultural landscape really important to native hawaiians and the reason we protect it through these permit processes is because it's such an amazing and sensitive place and so just please abide by the provisions they're, they're there to protect the place and if you can't make it this year maybe you'll make it next that was Alan Carpenter, State Parks Assistant Administrator, talking about the worldwide demand of, for camping permits for the Kalalau Trail along the Nepali Coast on Kauai. If you're looking for ways to support this public radio station, consider applying for HBR's Community Advisory Board. It's a group of volunteers from across the Hawaiian Islands who advise HBR's management on programming and outreach efforts. We're currently seeking 11 individuals to join this advisory team. To nominate yourself or someone else, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Application deadline is June 25th.
Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check spotlights a gap in the sterilizations of feral cats due to the pandemic. Reporter Claire Caulfield has a story about it today. Good morning, Claire. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this is really interesting. I mean, we've seen so many programs that have just been paused. But, uh, yeah, when you can't get out there to uh, sterilize the cats to protect the birds, there could be a problem. Yeah, so um, the Humane Society had to pause their sterilization efforts for about two months, um, you know, right when everything was shutting down. There was concerns about transmission. They need to get supplies, face masks, make sure they could social distance, etc. Um, but now that the program is up and running again, they've um, just about doubled their efforts. Yeah, and the big concern is that feral cats can attack Uh, our bird population and we have some species that are really just hanging on yeah so um part of the reason I looked into this is is because Hawaii's native birds continue to be impacted by feral cats Um, the the state considers them one of the top concerns when looking at endangered birds Um, and certainly trap neuter release programs are not the only way to protect native birds Um, they're a controversial way to um, control feral cat populations. Um, but I just wanted to check in because when I when I started looking at this story um, about a year ago with the pandemic, there was concern that there was going to be a huge increase in feral cat populations, um, not only due to the pause in the trap neuter release program, um, but because during the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of people couldn't afford to keep their pets and were releasing them into the wild or relinquishing them. Um, and so there was a lot of concern about maybe the population could explode. Um, the good news from reporting the story is that there doesn't seem to have been that big increase in feral cat populations that many people were worried about, um, you know, back in early 2020. Well, I, I know that your uh, article today referenced a study that um, they did down in Hanalei. And uh, the numbers kind of astounded me. Um, yeah, so there have been a number of, of studies looking at um, the impact of cats on native bird species. I believe the one um, you're referring to was done between 2014 and 2016, um, founding that cats killed more than 250 native birds in that wildlife refuge. Um, it's, it's been well known that, that feral cats have led to the extinction of many species, including a number of, of species of birds here in Hawaii. Yeah, and all it takes is one to get in to do some serious damage. Yeah, one cat um, can do serious damage. I, I talked to some conservationists saying that there was um, one cat that took out 12 birds recently, um, 12 seabirds, and that was a really big impact because it's an endangered bird. And also these particular birds don't start breeding until they're about six or seven years old. And so that that loss of a dozen um, can set the entire species back years. And, and that's really what the conservations with the conservation workers I spoke with wanted to stress is that um, they're really concerned about these species, that there's only about a hundred or a a thousand of these individuals left in the wild. And so they're weighing that against, um, you know, cats, which make make great pets, um, but are very abundant in the wild and are an introduced species. The other thing that surprised me in your article was this whole thing of toxoplasmosis, you know, the the parasite that the cats... uh, carry in their feces and uh, it's affected um, things like you know monk seals but I was really surprised that uh, yeah I didn't realize that they also killed a like the hoi nene yeah, so um, toxoplasmosis, it's a parasite. Um, it can only reproduce inside of a cat's digestive system. So there's a direct line between cats and this parasite. Um, yes, at- autopsies of, of nenes and, and Hawaiian crows um, have found that these animals were impacted by this parasite. Um, the parasite also, you know, impacts Hawaiian monk seals. There's been, I think, in the last couple of years, three monk seals that they believe died by this parasite, um, or at least the autopsy found that it was carrying this parasite um, and that impacts its health significantly. And then when I was speaking to um, state, the Department of Land and Natural Resources, they said they're also really concerned about the human impact of this parasite. Um, humans can be affected by this parasite. Um, it's rare, but it can cause miscarriage or blindness. So just um, a lot of impacts of feral cats on Hawaii's environment. Yeah, lots of uh, stressors out there. So we'll just have to see Uh, you know, what happens in the months to come. But, uh, yeah, interesting story. Thanks so much.
Thanks for reading. All right. That was reporter Claire Caulfield with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. This the famous Jane Evans? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm famous, but it's definitely the DJ Evans. How, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really good. Thank you so much. Congratulations. In terms of like this, I haven't seen this thing yet, but I'm so excited to see it. I, it was our normal, I guess. The funny thing about it all was our normal, but you know, I think the film, at least for me, it's about honoring the women before me. Mm. And honoring the women that weren't, were not also were not even included in the film because there was a lot of other women out there like Jane Hardy of ABC News and and hopefully opening up the doors to women who apparently they're more reluctant to pick up a camera so hopefully it will inspire them. That was HPR's news director Bill Dorman catching up with his former CNN colleague Jane Evans. She's one of the women featured in a new documentary premiering this week. It's entitled. No Ordinary Life. Here's a clip from the trailer. All of us, we were frontline combat camera women. We'd come back with the goods. The guys with the AK-47s pulled up right next to us and just started firing into our car. I just remember thinking, this is how it ends. We made a mistake. And this is how it ends. The film focuses on five camera women who worked for the cable news network channel in its early days. They were some of the first in the industry to put their lives on the line in some of the most dangerous places in the world. The conversations Russell Sibiano spoke with the film's director, Heather O'Neill, to learn more. Stories about pioneers in any industry are important stories to tell. How did this one come to your attention? And why was it important for you to tell it? Well, having worked at CNN for many years, I first met Mary Rogers in Baghdad in 2006. And, you know, I was just struck. I really had rarely seen uh, camera women out in the field. And, you know, as I got to sort of, you know, meet some of the other camera women in the field, you know, it just kind of dawned on me, you know, wow, they have such an incredible story. Wouldn't this make a great documentary? And, you know, it was unique because it's a largely male-dominated business. And, you know, CNN was unique in the fact that they had five international camera women. You know, no other news, international news organization had that many, you know, women out in the field, um, you know, camera women. So it was just a really unique story. And as I got to learn more of their stories, it, it, I just knew I had a really great story to tell. Did you know from the start that you were going to focus on these five women or did it kind of start with one and grew from there? I think from the get-go, my partner on the film, Rich Brooks and I, we knew we wanted to tell all of their story because they, they had such a bond together. You know, there really was a sisterhood there because, you know, there were so few of them. You know, they worked a lot in different countries, but when they got together, you know, they were always incredibly supportive of each other you know, in, in some really harrowing, you know, situations and different wars and conflicts they covered around the world. So we knew, you know, because they, they had this kind of sisterhood and we knew we wanted to, to tell all of, you know, their story together. What was the process you went through to put the film together? Was it hard to get the archival footage? And how did you find the narrative thread to kind of weave everything together? You know, we had hundreds and hundreds of hours of archive footage, of beta tapes, you know, some, you know, okay, you know, Cindy opened up a trunk and there were a hundred tapes in there, or I'd go up to New York and with an empty suitcase and get all of Jane's tapes and Mary would ship some in from Cairo and, you know, Maria would drop them off. So it was just this kind of like, you know, amalgamation of, you know, uh, collecting hundreds of hours of, of tape and going through it. And you know, it was really cool. It was so long ago for some of them that they kind of forgot there were these really 
insane, crazy moments. You know, Jane getting pinned down on a rooftop in Tripoli, Beirut during the civil war there. Or Maria Fleet, you know, had been filming herself before she was ambushed in Tikrit, Iraq. You know, it was it was quite a process of discovery. It was it was exciting sometimes and tough other times. But the narrative really started to come together for me as the director when I just started to understand that there were these stories in front of the camera and then these moments behind the camera. And that really is the narrative is weaving all of the stories that they covered, you know, with their sort of behind the scenes moments that we were, that we were able to, to find. And I don't think we would have been able to tell a great story if we didn't hadn't found those moments. But that's really is the narrative is, you know, what they saw in front of the camera and what they experienced behind the camera. One of them was shot in the face or something during yeah. one of the stories they were covering. Yeah, Margaret Moth was in Sarajevo. This was in 1992. And she had been driving down Sniper Alley and was literally a, a sniper shot a bullet and it hit the back hit their van and it just basically shattered the bottom of her jaw mm -hmm. and amazingly she survived it's you know it, it's unbelievable that she did survive but she was able to and uh got medevaced out eventually to the mayo clinic and they they helped you know with her whole recovery but what's remarkable about margaret is she wanted to go back to sarajevo when she was you know put back together and she did oh that's incredible you know, these women often found themselves in circumstances most people would avoid, wars and the aftermath of violent uprisings. Did they share with you where that courage and drive came from? They were very honest about their fears sometimes that, you know, they would often say to me, you know, we weren't fearless. Like, fear is your friend. Fear tells you when you're getting too close. Like, it's kind of this guide um, as they went through these difficult places. But I think, you know, above everything else, they were such committed journalists that they knew what their job was and their job was to go to these places and to bear witness. And that, you know, they would try to put their emotions aside while they could try to focus and continue working. You know, they're human beings, of course. I think, I think a lot of their work took a, took a pretty heavy toll on all of them. And, you know, this was a time when people didn't talk about PTSD, you know, they mm -hmm. kind of joked uh, that they didn't really know what it was, they would just sort of have each other. So I think, you know, that the courage, you know, came from being a committed journalist that they knew they had to tell these people's stories, and they had to kind of put aside their own fear to in order to do it. Did they have the idea that they were blazing a trail when they were in the moment of doing it? Or were they just kind of doing a job they loved and that was where they were at? I think it's probably a combination of both. I mean, they absolutely loved what they did. You know, Mary Rogers at 64 years young is still out there doing great. You know, she's at the top of her game. So, you know, for decades, they did this work. And, you know, it's just this incredible commitment. I mean, I just kind of get back to that, that, you know, I mean, they're also kind of humble in a way that I don't think they would, they would stand and say, God, you know, we were trailblazers. They would say things like, right. you know, seeing another camera woman was like finding a leopard in the jungle. Like it was that rare, <laughs> you know, they didn't really pat themselves on the back too much, but, but I think they knew that they were unique, you know, in that there were five of them in one news organization. You say in your director's statement on the film's website that Women bring an important dynamic and experience to storytelling. Can you share more about that with our listeners? Yeah, you know, women's stories are so incredibly important. And, and as a female director, it's great to be able to, to tell this, this story about these women. Um, you know, I was incredibly inspired by their story. And, you know, there's such value in sharing these stories. You know, they're really there's beginning to be more films made and directed by women about women. And I think, you know, it's, it's not a complete level playing field yet, but, you know, I want younger, you know, people to see this film, you know, for all of us, we hope that, you know, that old adage, if you, you can't be it, if you don't see it. And I think that, you know, it, it surprises a lot of people still to this day that they, they see women with cameras out in the field, you know, in international news. And, you know, I want this film to be seen so people understand that, you know, these are the people that have actually done this work. They're, they're bringing these stories to your attention, you know, in kind of the, the safety of, of your own home. 
and it's you know it's just this this value and and it's exciting to see that there's more stories being told about women and you know it, it's important you know there's women do bring a different dynamic and experience of storytelling you know and and the more we see that you know i think the more equitable you know things will be not only in the media but you know in the world do you have an estimation of what percentage of camera women are working in the news industry today i don't know that statistic I think it's changing just from what I see, you know, even going out in the field, I think that that is definitely changing. I think that there is more parity out there for the technical side of, you know, of news gathering. Uh, certainly, you know, there's always been a lot of female producers and directors, yeah. but I think that there are more women getting involved in the technical side of, you know, news and, you know, filmmaking in general. You know, I think, I think things are changing and, and that's great. After interviewing the five women, what kind of impression did they leave on you? I mean, wow, they were just, you know, they were really great journalists. They were, you know, badass, if you can say that. Um, you know, just collectively looking at them, I mean, they were really fierce. I mean, they, they were a force to be reckoned with. You know, and this was, you know, they, they covered, you know, over three decades and they saw a lot. And, you know, I think the thing that I was really struck with is, is they never took no for an answer. They, they never saw themselves as different as their male colleagues. You know, they just did their job. And I think that, you know, that really struck me that, you know, they, they, there were in some incredible sacrifices. I mean, Margaret Moth was, was shot by a sniper and survived. You know, these women, you know, led extraordinary lives, but they were also difficult, you know, difficult living on the road, difficult you know, telling your family you're going to Somalia or you're going back to Sarajevo, you know, they were just really extraordinary women, really tough, really smart, and, and just really were at the top of their profession for decades. That was director Heather O'Neill talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about her documentary, No Ordinary Life. The film premieres on Wednesday at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. To see the film online, click on the link of the conversation page of our website hawaiipublicradio.org later on today. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. A Maui Observatory is the site of a special kind of hunt in space. Astronomer Christopher Phillips tells us what they're looking for in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet, and as usual, getting a guide through the uh, festivities with astronomer Christopher Phillips, who we're grateful to have on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for Mars and Venus, which can both be seen in the west after sunset. Venus will be setting around about 8.30 and Mars at around 9.30. The moon this week is passing through its first quarter phase and will remain a benign presence in our night skies through week's end. And I understand you've got an update on a search for asteroids taking place on the Valley Isle. Indeed. Asteroids are a source of constant awe and worry for astronomers around the world, particularly NEOs, or near-Earth objects, as they could potentially be hazardous to life here on merry old planet Earth. Detecting and tracking these objects is somewhat of a high priority for several astronomical surveys, including that performed by the PANSTARS telescope atop Haleakala on Maui. PANSTARS recently spotted three brand-new NEOs as they traversed the dark between the planets. And such a thing can be tricky, right? Because these things aren't the easiest to, to locate. Exactly. One of the issues with spotting these enigmatic lumps of rock and iron is that the window of opportunity can be very small indeed. This difficulty is compounded by the fact that these objects are incredibly faint. That makes spotting them on the night of, say, a full moon, for example, very hard for ground-based astronomers. And how about during a lunar eclipse? <laughs> well... 
funny you should say that because that is exactly what astronomers using PANSARS were able to do. They found one particular NEO that hadn't been seen since 2001, and the dimming caused by the moon passing into the Earth's shadow allowed them to catch a glimpse once more of this pesky space rock. And they don't have to do this every time, right? Sometimes it does depend on the size of the thing and other kinds of observational factors. Oh, absolutely. Uh, PANSARS is more than capable of finding faint objects in the solar system at times when the moon isn't too bright like now, for example, but it does demonstrate that this is not an easy job. And what's the plan for trying that again? Well, the next lunar eclipse visible from Hawaii will be on the night of November 18th, and the team at PANSTARS are already planning their next asteroid hunt. Well, unlike a lot of the things you've got in the future, which tend to be years or decades or even centuries <laughs> ahead, this one is something we can look for on a, a more near-time sort of uh, trajectory, and we'll look for a report from you then. Thank you so much, Chris. You are welcome, Dave. It's Christopher Phillips, and I'm Dave Lawrence, and we'll catch you next week with Stargazer, which you can find at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. Rise Above the Chaos, How to Keep Positive in an Unsettled World is a title of a new book out offering a compass of sorts as we move into another phase of this pandemic. We have been dealing with all kinds of mixed messages, which has added to our collective stress. You've probably heard the line, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And in some ways that can be said of author Carolyn Gross. She touches down on Today in the Islands and will be featured in a book event at the Kona Stories Bookstore on June 19th. I've just used crisis and adverse unexpected events in my life to grow me stronger and, you know, more powerful. And that happened from a spinal cord injury on a family vacation. It happened when I had a cancer diagnosis, and it also happened as the president of my own company going through two different downturns in the economy and continuing to reinvent myself so that I could stay on point, serving others, but also, you know, prospering and not feel like a victim. This is a global experience now. We're we're not just going through individual defining moments. This is a collective defining moment. And so for people that haven't had a lot of crisis, this really is an opportunity for them to redefine their lives and use whatever lessons they've had from the adversity to, you know, reinvent themselves to have a happier life after it, rather than by feeling a victim. So uh, what are you advising folks do? I mean, how do we get through this? Specifically, what am I asking people to do? Mm -hmm. Not project too far into the future. Because right now that can be very disheartening. Take a look at what they learned when they were in quarantine and what were the things they missed the most. Well, that's an indicator of what they need to do more in their lives. So as they repurpose and reposition themselves, what it was different for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. What they really missed, was it social gatherings? Was it the arts? Was it going to the gym or church or whatever, you know? Well, that's your, that's your compass to help you bring yourself out back to the world and be a little bit of a happier person. You know, we, we are hearing a lot about mental health during this time. Take a time out and say, you know, it's okay. If I'm feeling depressed, it's okay. You know, um, so we're all going through this. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that that's why I've put the global shuffle, my job is putting handles on chaos and crisis. Handles so that people can pick them up and then put them down instead of being completely taken over by them. Okay? So as we come back, as you were just saying, like we're not really back yet. As we come back, what we have to realize is people are sometimes behaving badly, taking out some anger, maybe not as helpful, maybe rude, 
you know, I have a I have a story and I have client stories where, you know, they went to do like a, a, a special outing, an outdoor event during the Memorial Day weekend. And then people got in a fight. Police were there and the whole thing got ruined. And they're like, oh, my God. And now they're even like more depressed because they went out. They tried to have fun during the holiday and it turned into a disaster. And, you know, it's like, how many disasters can we take, right? Mm-hmm. So people have to put handles on this, meaning, look, there's a lot of pent-up emotion, and we're not even used to being together. So maybe social skills have been distanced, right? They have to be redefined and fine-tuned so that we can come out again and play nice together. I was talking to someone, and uh, I remember he was just sharing about we're not sure if this pandemic is over, you know, because there's a lot we don't know about those variants, and we don't know if we're going to be able to get enough people to get vaccinated to have herd immunity. We're in the middle of a transition period, I guess, and and there's this uncertainty and unsettledness. Are you familiar with psychoneuroimmunology? What is that? Well, that's where you use your mind to heal your body and direct your body into the, you know, area that it wants to go. So, and that's been scientifically proven, you know, that people who use their mind to heal their bodies heal faster. Mm -hmm. So having worked in the cancer field and worked, you know, in immunotherapy and with cancer patients What I found and the whole staff found was when people had a reason to live, they got over cancer, even stage four really tough ones, you know, because they had it in their mind that they had to live. And so now I'm using all those years of working with cancer patients to help people that haven't had that type of a disease get the strength within themselves to focus on what's the destination you want to go. Again, it's the compass. Do you want to stay healthy? Do you want to have a strong immune system? Do you want to believe those possibilities are, are you know, in existence and available to you? Or do you want to be, you know, dragged around by the tail of the dragon, you know? You've been coming to Hawaii, and I know you've been uh, uh, reaching out to cultural practitioners here in the islands, you know, just to yes. learn about the, the healing, I guess, perspective yes. from, uh, from from Hawaiians, from Native Hawaiians. Correct. And wouldn't, wouldn't they agree that the more peaceful we are, the more easily we can heal if we have illness or infirmity. But to get upset and to be afraid, you know, takes us away from our natural healing spirit. And the islands themselves are such a natural healing oasis. So there's a huge advantage. You have so many people that come and travel to you. So that's one thing that other areas don't have, you know, so many people coming from all over. But that they come to the islands for the renewal, for the peace, for the aloha. You know, so, I mean, I think we need a Aloha spirit on the planet right now. (laughs) You know, uh, this pandemic has really been just disruption after disruption. You have shared that during this time, you know, you had to make a move. And so, you know, what was that like? You know, it's a chaotic time and uh, lots of change. Well, I've called chaos the great teacher. That's how, again, as I mentioned, that I put handles on stress so I can pick it up and put it down. When I moved and when we, you know, redirected our lives out of a bigger city of San Diego to a smaller area in the Palm Springs area, moving is stressful. And it was the end, or see, there is, we don't know when the end is. That's another thing about this whole experience that makes it so stressful, right? Because if you think of holidays, holidays are stressful, but we know in January they're going to be over, right? And our situation we're in right now, that unknown variable, to me, is more threatening than the variances, if you will. But, yeah, um, what, what moving did was, first of all, it allowed for a purpose and a goal and a target. So that now, remember I was saying for a minute ago in psychoneuroimmunology, you direct your thought and you say to your compass, I want to have the aloha spirit and I want to be happy and I want to give as much joy as I can. 
to the world and to the wherever my circle is. Mm-hmm. And in moving, even though it was moving as a stressful event, I had a goal, you know, and I we had a target. And when we accomplished that, even though it was stressful, we cut that good feeling that reminded us of, you know, how it feels to accomplish something. And this is where I think the shuffle comes in, because, you know, people are moving all, I mean, even if they're not leaving the island, per se, right? In, you know, when you live in Southern California, a lot of people have left some of the big cities, New York, you know, and and L.A. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're really leaving. I mean, it's not like a few people. It's like, let me give you an example. We moved in December, and what happened was they said, you have to book your moving van six weeks out. So isn't that an example? Because I think before pandemic, you could get your moving van in, you know, a month, <laughs> which is a normal escrow, right? Yeah, so the, see it all change. Yeah, it's the uncertainty. It's the disruption of the familiar. It's getting used to new practices, whether it's putting on a mask, uh, washing your hands, uh, just doing things that uh, in a different way. Basically, this is a, a kind of a self help book you know i think it's actually steps to help people deal with uncertainty and adversity but with the purpose of transitioning and transforming their life into something better rise above that's the whole idea of rising it's not like oh i'm gonna stay sane stay sane (laughs) or i'm gonna stay the same in the chaos you know what i mean Um, By the way, my first book is Staying Calm in the Midst of Chaos. So I was always trying to find that that aloha inside Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I identify internal versus external chaos. Obviously, that's why I'm talking about the global impact because we've had so much external chaos on us that our internal has really been tested to the hilt. We've been hearing from author Carolyn Gross. She'll be featured this weekend at an event at the Big Island Bookstore, Kona Stories, on Saturday, June 19th. Find links on our website later today. Well, we're all out of time. Tomorrow we talk public access. The city just recently took down a gate after warning the owner to allow access access to beachgoers in the Portlock area. Do you have a public access experience on your island you want to share with? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.